Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Dave Ansell. And with me, Ben Valsler. And I will start off this week with a paper published in the journal Science that shows that pollution in Asia gets pushed up into the stratosphere by hitching a ride on the monsoon. William Randall at the National Centre for Atmospheric Research in Colorado and an international team including researchers at York and Edinburgh universities used satellite imaging to keep track of something called hydrogen cyanide. Now this is a pollutant associated with burning that usually stays mainly up in the troposphere. That's the lowest portion of Earth's atmosphere. Hydrogen cyanide is a particularly apt choice because usually most of it is lost to the ocean. There's relatively little high up in the troposphere, so with normal circulation, there'll actually be relatively little that can move up into the stratosphere. In general, air is circulated from the troposphere up to the stratosphere. That's the next layer of the atmosphere. It starts somewhere between 10 and 50 kilometres. And usually the air moves up into there at the tropics. And that's as part of something called the Brewer-Dobson circulation. But this paper shows that the Asian summer monsoon acts as a very effective pathway for rapid transport of air upward from the Earth's surface. And that in turn provides a route for pollutants like black carbon, sulphur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and all of these get to gain access to the stratosphere. The route is there because the monsoon itself contains a strong anticyclonic vortex. That's a circulation of winds around a high-pressure region that pushes air up from the ground. It's a little bit like a hurricane, but it turns in the other direction. Once pollutants get up into the stratosphere, they're very likely to be moved around the world, and they impact on atmospheric chemistry, such as reacting with ozone. In fact, movement in the stratosphere is far greater than movement between the troposphere and the stratosphere itself. So this horizontal movement is actually greater than the vertical movement. It also creates a barrier between some pollutants, such as HCN, this hydrogen cyanide, and the ocean, which acts as a sink for them. So in, up in the atmosphere, without contact with the seas, hydrogen cyanide has a lifetime of about four years. Now, this does give us some great cause for concern, because not only is the industrial pollution of Asia increasing at an unprecedented rate, but now it looks like it has a direct pipeline up to the stratosphere. So pollution from Asia can actually have a greater effect on atmospheric chemistry than we've ever thought possible. And I guess the last big story about pollutants getting up into the stratosphere was CFCs getting up there, causing havoc with the ozone layer as well. Exactly, yes. And changes in atmospheric chemistry can be very important. And of course, the ozone story is a very well-recognised story. Now, fresh water is one of the most fundamental needs of humans, and a group from MIT has found out a new way to make it. Um, many, many natural disasters can remove our source of clean, fresh water, which is absolutely lethal for us. But one inexhaustible source of water is, of course, the sea, but the salt makes it no use for drinking. There's various ways of desalinating this water, but most of them don't scale down very well. So if you had lots of people in a, a disaster area, you can't give them out a little water purification kit very easily. The, the best one of those so far is reverse osmosis, essentially filtering the salt out with a special membrane. This requires large pressures, which needs a pump, and membranes tend to get gummed up by contaminants. Now, Sung J. Kim from MIT and colleagues have come up with an alternative. Instead of using a membrane to separate the salt from the water, they're using electricity. They made a Y shape of very small channels, about half a millimetre wide. The dirty water comes up the stem of the Y. On one of the two arms is a what's called a naphion nanojunction, made up of material called naphion. This is a material which will let positively charged ions flow through it, but negatively ones. 
um, this means that you end up with an area where no ions and it's formed this complicated process, which ends up means an area with no ions in it, and all of the ions get pushed up the other junction of the Y, um, meaning you get fresh water coming down the first um, arm of the Y and charged species and ions and bacteria all end up going out through the contaminated one with 99% of the water is removed. It isn't quite as energy efficient as reverse osmosis but it's intrinsically a much smaller scale thing and you could maybe build a machine consisting of maybe 1600 of these junctions purify about 15 litres of water a day which is enough for a family and because the contaminants are all pushed away from the sensitive parts it doesn't clog up in the same way as a membrane does. Roughly how much power does it use? You said it's less efficient than a reverse osmosis pump, but usually they're pumped by hand. It might be quite a difficult comparison. It's sort of using, maybe using about twice as much energy as a normal, as a reverse osmosis system. So it's same order, but not quite as good, but you can, can scale it down. Excellent. Now, research looking at the shape of the H1N1 pandemic flu virus has revealed why seasonal flu vaccines don't offer any protection. But it also suggests why the older generation are more likely to have immunity to the pandemics. Two papers, one published in the journal Science by Ian Wilson and colleagues, and the other in the journal Science Translational Medicine by Gary Nabel et al., looked at slightly different aspects of the virus and together made some very interesting conclusions. So, writing in Science Translational Medicine, Gary Nabel and colleagues exposed mice to seasonal and pandemic flu strains from both 1918, what we call the Spanish flu, and from 2009, the swine flu pandemic, and analysed the antibodies that they produced in response. They found that antibodies against pandemic viruses protected the mice from both 1918 and 2009 pandemic flu, but seasonal flu antibodies offered no protection at all from pandemic viruses. They did, however, protect very well against seasonal flu, so essentially they're not protecting against each other. This tells us there's something about the structure of both pandemic viruses that the antibodies can lock onto, something that they don't share with the seasonal virus particles. And they found, and this was then confirmed by the crystal structure of the virus particles published in Science magazine, that the antibodies were attaching to a protein that sits on the outside surface of the virus. This is called the spike protein, so-called because it helps to spike into cells and infect them. Interestingly, the structure of the spike protein is very similar in both the 1918 and 2009 pandemic viruses, and they share what we call an epitope. They're nearly identical, and an epitope is a region of a molecule that has essentially a well-defined shape to which an antibody can attach. In the seasonal virus, however, the spike protein is obscured by two sugar groups, and this stops the host immune system from recognising the virus, and it's actually one reason why vaccines designed for pandemic viruses don't offer you any protection against the seasonal forms. So not only does this tell us why you don't develop immunity to both types of flu when you've suffered from one, but it also hints at why older people were more likely to be protected against last year's H1N1 pandemic. Exposure to the 1918 strain as a child may well have tuned their immune system to the shape of that spike protein and therefore offered some immunity. Very cunning virus, that. Now, ceramics, materials like pottery, have all sorts of very useful properties. They're very hard, resistant to heat, and some are very strong. But their use has always been very limited because they're very, very brittle. They're not tough, which means you, they can't absorb energy from impact without shattering, um, as you've probably noticed if you've ever dropped a cup or a plate on the floor. And once a crack starts going through the ceramic, there's nothing to stop it keep on going all the way to the other edge of the material. 
for a while, scientists have been fascinated by shelled animals, things like abalone. Their shells are made of a tiny plate of the brittle ceramic calcium carbonate, effectively limestone, mixed with proteins through a very, very tough material, which can survive an incredible amount of abuse. This is because a crack can only travel through a single plate, and then it stops at the edge of that plate. Many scientists have been interested in these properties and been trying to make various materials in the lab, and they've made various interesting ones. Now, Andreas Walter from Helsinki in Finland has managed to make a similar structure out of a clay which is made of microscopic plates and PVA glue. It's very easy to make and can actually be painted or sprayed onto walls or an aircraft skin. The properties are actually very similar to fiberglass, and it, but it can be applied much more easily and it's much thinner. And apparently tests with flamethrowers say it's also very fire resistant. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that you've looked at the test with flamethrowers bit. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because, of course, we use these... It, it sounds like it's essentially a laminated material where you have different layers with something different in between. And this is something that we rely on quite a bit in materials it's and it's quite it's, yeah you're using two different materials you're using the very very stiff strong strength of that ceramic but the toughness of the pva long polymer molecules which hold them all together and resist the cracking thanks dave also in the news this week a paper in the journal nature overturns a 100 year old misunderstanding about how the arteries that supply the heart with blood first develop Paul Riley from University College London is the author of the News and Views article that accompanied the paper, and uh, he joins us now. Hello, Paul. Hi. First of all, what has been the prevailing idea for the last 100 years, if not more, about how coronary arteries actually form? Well, it's an evolving idea, really. So initially, the coronary arteries are thought to bud off from the main vessel aorta that serves the rest of the body. Uh, that was disproven when actually vessels were shown to ingrow into the aorta, so the reverse process. And then more recently, um, over the last sort of 20 years or so, studies in chicken and quails have shown that a transient organ called the proepicardial organ, which uh, sits just above the developing liver at the sort of base of the heart, if you like, that contributes cells which can give rise to the epicardium, which surrounds the heart, and then those cells subsequently give rise to endothelial cells which make up um, the coronary arteries. So that's, if you like, that was the that's the most common idea as it stands before this paper. And so, what have they discovered now? What's what's new about this paper? Well, a previously unsuspected source, really. I mean, what they've shown is by very carefully tracking individual cells within the the mouse heart through genetic tagging, they've shown that cells can emerge from the inflow region, a region uh, where there's a, a large uh, venous input called the sinus venosus and that these cells can de-differentiate as vein cells and actually give rise to new cells that then become artery-like and actually form the developing coronary arteries. So it's a completely unsuspected source of cells, and moreover, the fact that they can de-differentiate and change their fate from veins to arteries is the real crux of the finding. So these cells start out as a vein cell... That's right. ..and then they turn into a, just a general cell... And what do they do then? Do they migrate themselves or do they grow through into the tissue? Yeah, I mean, you have to get um, the de-differentiation, the, the, de the change of the sort of vein cells. They have to de-differentiate to become more progenitor-like, if you like. And then they have to migrate inward and start to form a, a plexus where they're connected into the muscle tissue of the developing heart. And then they become fated to become arterial cells. So they start to turn on characteristic markers which suggests that they are becoming arterial-like. And that network then progresses throughout the developing muscle of the heart to form the coronary artery network. 
Now, what does this tell us with regards adults with heart conditions? Because all of this work has been looking at the embryonic development, where these arteries first come from. But of great concern to many, many people is what happens when these arteries become blocked or become damaged later in life as an adult. Can we learn anything from this work that could help us to treat people? Well, I think there's a very basic principle that if you understand how the heart is put together, both at the coronary vessel side and also the developing muscle, then understanding the the cell behavior and the signals that trigger that can be applied to the adult setting. So some of these cells are present in the adult heart, and therefore if we understand how to um, re-trigger the process of making new vessels, then obviously we're in a position where we can revascularize an injured heart that has lost blood um, vessels and also muscle, say, after a heart attack. So it's fundamentally important to understand how these vessels are made in the first place to then go back into the adult, track a similar cell population, and then be able to stimulate with appropriate signals to make new vessels. So it's completely translatable, although some some way off in terms of the uh, realistic research goal, but this is a, a major step in the right direction. And through understanding, taking these studies further, understanding how they switch from veins to arteries and understanding the signals from neighboring tissues that allow this to happen should be able to then be fully translated into the adult setting and hopefully um, set up a therapeutic by way of making new blood vessels. Very promising stuff. Obviously very early stages, but very, very promising. Well, thank you ever so much, Paul. That was Paul Riley from the UCL Institute of Child Health. You can find his News and Views article and the paper itself, which is by Christy Redhorse and colleagues at Stanford University. You can find them both in this week's Nature magazine. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.